Evan Kleiman has been called the fairy godmother of the LA food scene. She is the host of KCRW's radio show, Good Food, and the author of eight books on Italian food. She is also the founder of Slow Food Los Angeles and serves on the Stewardship Council for the Roots of Change and as a member of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Evan Kleiman. Hi, everybody. This is a, a really big pleasure to um, get to spend more time talking to Tracy. I had the great pleasure of interviewing her for Good Food last week, but as always, those are very, very short little snippets. So um, I'd like to introduce uh, Tracy McMillan. Tracy is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute of Investigative Journalism and the author of this incredibly interesting um, and provocative book, The American Way of Eating. Um, before we begin, how many people have read the book yet? Okay. So um, aside from our topic of the evening, I thought before we, we leap right into the topic, it would be a really good idea to um, take you through Tracy's journey a bit because she um, had quite a journey. Um, <laughs> a bit. <laughs> a bit. So um, tell us why you decided to... Um, do this radical thing, quit your job, and take a lot of time and earn no money <laughs> in these famous now three locations, a farm, a Walmart, and Applebee's. Right. Well, saying that I quit a job is a little generous. I'm a freelancer, so anyone that sort of grasps um, what that industry is like, you know, I usually work out of my apartment, and then I'm spending time trying to pitch ideas, and so doing a book for me professionally seemed like a sort of you know, a way to do some work that I was really excited about and that could really help me sort of establish myself doing work that I loved, which is writing about um, basically how life works for working-class communities and low-income families, um, and do it in a way where I was talking about something that most people were already interested in. So food worked really well for that. Um, part of it, too, right, I sort of joke about this, is that, you know, I when I sat down to talk with an agent about doing a book, she said, well, what do you really want to write about? And I said, stupid foodies are really irritating, and I really think that we should talk about food for normal people, right? I'm sure it was some sort of, like, ranty thing, and, you know, it was to my agent's credit, she was like, oh, I think we can work with this, <laughs> right? And so um, we sort of sat down, we tried to think about how we could build on my expertise, which is mostly as a welfare and poverty reporter and investigative journalist, and do some work around food and sort of build on that discussion that I was interested in. And so what we came up with, and most of the reviewers have mentioned this, right, was Nickel and Dimed, the Barbara Ehrenreich book, mm -hmm. but about food. And so by the time we got to publishing meetings, it was, this is very helpful for anyone trying to pitch a book. Um, Nickel and Dimed meets the omnivore's dilemma. <laughs> this is LA, Hollywood, you know, the meats pitch is super helpful. Um, and so I really wanted to sit down and have a way to engage with how food works for the sorts of people that I grew up with, I'm from a working class background in Michigan, the sorts of people that I lived near um, in Brooklyn, right? Because I put myself through NYU, so I got myself into a cheap apartment, which was, you know, in the edge of Bed-Stuy. Um, and the people that I was reporting on, you know, why I was doing welfare work, because I think food is something that's as important uh, for those communities, right, as it is for, you know, the folks that have more income and can sort of 
like, you know, indulge in really nice meals at nice restaurants and things like that. I think that's one reason why I really love the book <clears throat> is that it's sort of like the anti-foodie book. It's, it, <laughs> it's like flipped on its head. And the interesting thing about the book, too, is it's, it's sort of great the way it's laid out. You have the narrative of the personal experiences running through the top and then the footnotes, which are basically... <laughs> um, the footnotes that aren't at the back of the book, There's, it's sort of like a CNN crawl at right. the bottom of the book. <laughs> That you could just read those by itself and it would give you a really amazing snapshot of... It would be um, very boring. It would be very <laughs> useful information. A lot of really <laughs> useful information about the food system. So let's talk about where you started. You started on a farm. Yeah, so right, the idea was I would work my way through the food system. So I went and I got work in uh, several different crops here in California. And you know, I was doing this all undercover, so I basically showed up and said, you know, Hi, I want to work. This is all in really bad Spanish, by the way. You know, I estoy buscando trabajo y quiero trabajar en el campo. And, you know, I'm looking for work. I want to work in the field. Uh, I got a lot of, well, don't you want to work in a store? <laughs> and I would say, no, no, I have a lot of problems right now. And I don't really want to talk about it. And I don't want to have to be nice to customers. If I can make a minimum wage out here, I might as well just work out here. And... After you start showing up multiple days in a row, I think you know people are generally like, "Well, that is just one broke white girl," <laughs> you know. So like, you show up and you do the work, and they're like, "Why would anybody do this?" You know, other than they really have to, right? Um, so the idea there was that I could. There's sort of one of the ideas behind the like the jobs I took was that I really wanted to understand how we grow and produce healthy food, right? So that meant focusing on fruits and vegetables. So, you know, I wanted to work in fields that were producing fresh fruits and vegetables for us. Because it's sort of weird for me to be looking for work, I couldn't be like, okay, I will go and I will work in, you know, the green pepper field, right? I sort of took what I could get because um, that's how most farm workers find work. Um, and so where did you end up? What crops? So I did one day in grapes, which was initially just supposed to be like a dry run to get a better understanding of how that labor market worked. Um, but the whole process of getting that work um, and then actually doing um, a side job, essentially selling food to onion workers um, with my Meyer Doma, with the woman who um, was next door to me and was employing me on her grape crew. Um, that was how she was making money when there was no grape work, and so I went and worked with her. I just learned so much from that that I ended up including it in the book. Um, and from there, I actually went through an agricultural services organization, like an agricultural company, um, to get work on a crew in a peach orchard um, outside of Kingsburg, and I was put to work as a sorteadora, right? So I was sorting peaches, um, and... Right, the deal was that the supervisors for the company knew what I was doing, but that the people I worked with did not, because I just couldn't figure out how else was I definitely going to get work. Um, and I ended up leaving that job for a few reasons, the most sort of intense of which was that I got heat sick, and I just decided, this is pretty dangerous, and <laughs> it's probably not worth risking death to finish this project, so maybe I can move to a more temperate place. Um, but... I think I, I'm stubborn enough, I probably have tried to persist, except that I also was getting treated with favoritism from the supervisor who would, 
And I, I don't necessarily think that this was like him trying to suck up. I think he was sort of like that poor thing. It's really hot out. Like she needs a ride across. You know, so he'd be like, oh, do you want to ride back to your car? Because it's you know, a half mile across the field. He'd be like, yes. <laughs> um, that, and then also I was living with a, uh, a different myodoma who was very kind to me, but I didn't really like her. And it's really hard to write compellingly about people you don't like, right? Because it's sort of like getting stuck with somebody who hates their roommate at dinner and all they're doing is talking about their awful roommate. Like nobody, I don't want to write that or read that. Nobody, you know. So I decided I would move um, to the Salinas Valley. And when I was there, I ended up picking garlic. And so I, that I was um, doing for a little more than a month um, and I ended up leaving that position because I, I got tendonitis and I had like one week left. And I kind of was just like, well, you know what? It's not like I, I can't use my arm. So what kind of farm work am I going to get? <laughs> am I going to stay here until my arm heals and then do one more week? Like that seems silly. Um, so the period of time that you were out in the fields, how long was it? Overall, it was just about two and a half, three months because I did the last two weeks of June in 2009 and then I came back to L.A. to do a little bit of getting my stuff in order. And then I think it was the second week in July I took off and was reporting through the end of August. I guess that's about nine weeks. And then you, you left the fields mm -hmm. and you sort of followed the produce to right. Walmart. Right. So I went to Walmart. And so I decided I would go to Michigan uh, for a few reasons. Um, part of it is that I'm from Michigan. So I... I feel very comfortable with that as a place in the country. And I, I liked the idea of doing reporting from the middle of the country, not just on the coasts, um, and having an engagement with that sort of community. And um, Michigan is also a huge agricultural producer. So they, uh, Michigan likes to say that it's the second most diverse um, producer of fruits and vegetables after California. Um, if you ask anyone where they get that number, they can't tell you. Um, so I've, you know, the numbers that I've seen, it's probably around the top 10, um, depending on, you know, sort of how you're ranking everybody. Um, and so I went there and, you know, I picked Walmart because it's the largest grocer in the U.S. and the world. So right now it represents a quarter of America's food retail um, that makes it the biggest, not just now, but in our history. Uh, for comparison, um, in the teens and 20s, A&P got a lot of flack about having too much market share and there was concern about antitrust and that's when it represented 16% of our food retail. Um, so that's why I went to Walmart. And I started out on the west side of Michigan, um, which I had picked initially because it's a, that's where a lot of the agriculture is. So this is over um, Kalamazoo, sort of the biggest town there, Battle Creek, which is where Kellogg is based, is over there as well. Um, with the idea that there's all this agriculture and then I can sort of background um, supermarket reporting. I ended up screwing up and getting hired into grocery instead of produce with this sort of hubris of a white-collar worker being like, oh, I can just transfer to Walmart. It'll be easy. <laughs> yeah, Walmart's a big corporation. It's very organized. Um, they require you to work, as many corporations do, for six months in one position in one store before they let you move around. Um, and I had a, it was an interesting case of tunnel vision. I had a couple days where I was like, oh, my God. I'm going to be here for six months. <laughs> <laughs> and my poor sister, you know, my sister lives in Kalamazoo, and I was talking to her, and I was like, it's fine, Shane, I'm just going to be stuck here in hell. <laughs> and she was like, Tracy, I, I live here, I like this place. I was like, I'm sure you do. But <laughs> right, and then I, you know, I talked to my editor, and she said, you can leave, and then you can go work at a different store. And I decided um, that actually it would be more interesting to go back to a Walmart outside of Detroit, because Detroit gets talked about as a food desert. 
um, and as an example of you know a city where there is no food. And so I thought it would be really interesting to sort of, you know, if people are doing the reverse commute to go grocery shopping, like why don't I have to mimic, I should mimic that with my reporting and do it that way. So you ended up in the produce department. What were you mostly doing? In the produce department, most of what I did was um, rotating food and culling from the floor. So I, um, I write about this in the book. My manager was 20 years old, and he didn't know anything about produce. <laughs> I mean, not really, not like he was really surprised when I... I do not fault a 20-year-old white kid from like the exurbs of Detroit for not knowing what a plantain is. <laughs> I'm a little shocked when he's surprised that it's related to a banana. <laughs> right? And I, you know, and that's fine. That's totally fine. That doesn't explain why he's in charge of half of a town's food supply, right? <laughs> um, because Walmart was one of two grocery stores in that town. So I did a lot of um, pulling stuff out if it was looking like it was going to go bad, rotating pallets and stock. So it's, a, I mean, there's still an awful lot of manual labor involved in a supermarket, right? Because, you know, it's funny if you had asked me to really pick apart how the food got under the shelves, I would have secretly told you robots, yeah. right? I wouldn't have thought like, oh, that like really long aisle full of flour and sugar at the holidays, some human moved all of that flour. You know, it didn't calculate. And so I was doing that in the produce section too, rotating a lot. Um, and then there were, you know, things like crisping, right? So this is um, a trick that all supermarkets use. It's not just Walmart. So you cut off um, the dead end of the green, and then you submerge it in, I learned this at Walmart. This is amazing. Slightly warm water, lukewarm water, because it opens up the cell walls. And so then you shock it in cold water, which will then plump up and seal it off. And then you put it in the refrigerator, and it plumps it up real nice. And I, I had actually done sort of a half-assed version of this at home before, where I was like, oh, if I put the cilantro in like the water, it looks better later. But the right. warm water, you didn't know. No, I didn't know. So yeah, it's you know a new trick for me. Um, for all of us. Yeah. Um, so, right, the, this is my, people ask for, like, shopping tips. I'm like, well, if you see a really short bunch of cilantro, it came in there with roots, probably, <laughs> right? So it's just been getting chopped off. And, and, you know, heads of cabbage, like, in the stockroom, right, you peel off the, the leaves that look bad and you put it back out. So if you see an array of cabbages... The small ones probably started out much larger, right? So in terms of, like, you know, freshness, you know, good to keep this in mind in terms of the tricks of the trade. Then you went to Applebee's. And then Applebee's, right? And so the idea... In Brooklyn. There, in Brooklyn. Um, Who knew there was an Applebee's in Brooklyn? So there's... Right? I thought this was really interesting. I was like, well... Right, and I really liked the idea of, I was like, well, everyone likes Kitchen Confidential, but, like, who goes to that restaurant? I'm like, I'm kind of into, like, doing Kitchen Confidential, but about Applebee's. Like, that sounds really awesome, right? Really interesting, because that's where, I mean, almost every, I would bet most Americans have been to an Applebee's at some point in their lives, right? <laughs> You're like, no, no. <laughs> Road trips? No, 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 no. <laughs> I would posit you may not be representative of the entire country. <laughs> but anyway, right, so I thought that would be really interesting, um, and it would be an excuse to talk about how cooking works, and also what we're paying for when we go out to eat. Um, at the time when I was pitching the book, it was 2008, and when I was working on the proposal, it was 2007. So like between when I started the proposal and when I pitched it, that's when the economy started to tank, right? So up until, like, right, of course, right before I pitched the book and started asking for money, 
<laughs> up until then, there's all the fair amount of money washing around, and Americans are spending just under 50% of their income, of their food budget on eating out. Um, that's, and then it all changed. Now it's dropped down. It's more like a 60-40 split to eating at home. You worked in the kitchen? I did. So I, um, I'd worked in kitchens before. My first um, job, once I got a car, so that you know, I'd had some other jobs, mostly in food, before that. But my first job in Michigan was um, as the salad bar stalker at a big boy, <laughs> which involves food prep, right? I was cutting lettuce and tomatoes and stocking everything and stuff like that. And I made much of this in my application to Applebee's. And was there more or less prep at Applebee's than there had been at big boys? I would, there was definitely less fresh produce. Um, at Applebee's than at Big Boy because Big Boy at least, this was before bagged salad because I remember I had to cut up lettuce a lot. So I was cutting up lettuce, tomatoes, onions, like all that stuff was th were pro bits of produce I cut up at Big Boy. At Applebee's, the only whole produce that came in were tomatoes, lettuce, and onions, right, which you need for burgers and fresh cilantro because they also make pico de gallo. Because um, they wanted to have another use for those same vegetables. Right, it's interesting. Um, you know, so different bloggers and, and, and you know, people just on the internet have emailed me um, responses that they've gotten when they've emailed Applebee's. I haven't heard anything from Applebee's, but they got something, right? So someone sends me this like press thing that they get from Applebee's that says, we cook a lot of our food there. In fact, we make many things from scratch, such as our pico de gallo. And I'm like, that is the only thing <laughs> that you make from scratch. And it uses the ingredients for the burger. I mean, so there's no fun. cooking, essentially. Um, so meat is cooked from a raw state, right? It's frozen, defrosted, and cooked on site. That totally is made there. And I would say that it's probably no worse than eating burgers that you make at home from supermarket beef, right? Like it's Cargill industrial beef. I'm sure it's about the same, like, it's fine. It's not the best thing ever, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. just what it is. Um, but pretty much everything else comes in frozen in a bag. So like mashed potatoes are mashed from real potatoes, which are, I note this in the book, they are rinsed, they are not scrubbed because that would be too much work. Um, they're mashed with like this, you know, it's a masher by hand that's like this, you know, the size of my face, right? Mashing the potatoes. And then it's mixed with garlic milk, which is a white liquid that comes in frozen in a plastic bag and then is defrosted. Presumably it contains milk. I don't know, there aren't ingredients on it. Um, and that's how you make the mashed potatoes. I will say they taste pretty good. Um, you know, and the deep fryer gets a real workout. But, you know, for the most part, there's just not that much done from fresh. Like pasta is cooked sometime in the last 24 hours. It's portioned out into a plastic bag and then it's nuked um, with sauce, right, when it's time to be served. Okay, so, so, so now we have an overview of, um, of Tracy's underground experience. <laughs> at the farm, in the produce section, and at the restaurant. So how did it work out, that desire to earn minimum wage? Uh, so working in the fields, I didn't make minimum wage except for the period when they knew I was a journalist. Uh, so when I was picking grapes, I was paid piece rate. Um, and that was, I was paid cash. So it was a little, it felt very informal, right? Um, <laughs> So that, I made $27 for a nine-hour day. Um, that was more than I made picking garlic in general. So um, before I had gone and done this reporting, you know, I had called up growers and I said, hey, you know, 
how do you pay people? How does this work? What about farm labor contracting? And every grower, and I still get this every time I talk to growers, they say there's no way people are being cheated out of their wages. It's too regulated. We're so overregulated. Nobody would do that. You would lose so much business if anyone ever found out. Nobody does that. Maybe, okay, maybe there's like some real, you know, like loose, fast cannon guy with a pickup truck and some porta potties and he pays in cash, right? And it's a fly by night operator. Maybe you find that, but really nobody does that. Um, that's pretty much all I saw, even <laughs> when people were much more organized. When I was picking garlic, you know, I was earning $1.60 for every five-gallon bucket I could fill. My first day, so these are you know, construction buckets. Uh, my first day, I was credited for about 10 buckets. I, I would estimate that I had actually picked about seven of those, and three represented a mix of flirtation and pity from some of my other... <laughs> my other pickers, right, who would, like, dump stuff in for me. So that's $16, right? Um, and for ease of math, um, like, for that particular day, I got just, like, a, a full check without my hours enumerated, which is illegal in and of itself. Later on, the process is started getting payroll checks, and what they would do is they would say, oh, $16, minimum wage here is 8 so that means we'll say you were here for two hours. And so you will get a payroll check where that math has been changed so that it looks like everybody's working two hours, three hours, four hours. So, I mean, 10 buckets is, is definitely low, but p nobody was earning more, was picking more than like 30. I mean, 30 was like, you were a serious picker. You had to pick 40 a day to make minimum. And so at Walmart and Applebee's, how much were you paid? Walmart, I got, I think, eight ten an hour. Um, so that was, I think, eight. Yeah, it was like seven fifty or eight dollars an hour in produce. Eight ten when I was on the night shift. You get a bit of a premium for being on the night shift um, in produce. And um, at Applebee's, I was told that I would be paid eight dollars training, nine dollars after that. Um, I ended up making minimum wage during training eight dollars an hour um, once I was sort of full on. So I'm curious, the people that you worked with, your fellow workers, are, are the people we're talking about, really, when we talk about um, working poor and, mm -hmm. and people who don't have access to um, the kind of foods that everybody in this room has access to, to. So what were your fellow workers eating? Was everybody eating fast food? Were you eating fast food? So I ate some fast food when I was working in the fields, mostly because I rarely was in a place where I felt comfortable cooking in the kitchen, and I would get really hungry. It's an interesting thing, right? When you're doing manual labor, you get hungry in a way that does not happen to me frequently as a desk worker. Um, but most of the people I worked with in the fields were not eating fast food. That's expensive, so it's something they would get maybe once a week. And, and when we're talking fast foods, like Little Caesars, like those hot and ready pizzas that are five dollars a piece, so the you know the family of seven would go get two pizzas uh, for the night. But usually they're cooking rice, beans, tortillas from scratch. Um, you know, and initially I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm getting such great Mexican food. This is so awesome. These people really know how to eat. And then I realized. Um, the one person cooking it was the 14-year-old daughter who wasn't going to school, right? So, yeah, it's great. I get to eat all this great food. It takes many, it takes like over an hour to make enough tortillas for the seven people in the family plus like the boarders that are eating with them, you know. So I'm just like, oh, the cost of my awesome slow food is like she's not going to school. So that was a very sobering experience. <laughs> and when you talked about food, in a larger context with them, particularly on the farm. Did, 
did they, um, had they heard the messages from on high about how they were supposed to be eating? I mean, people know fruits and vegetables good, right? Um, and it was interesting, the, um, the mother of the family of seven that I lived with, so when I was picking garlic, I lived in a two-bedroom house. Um, there were seven people, a family of seven in one bedroom, a family of four in the second. I had a cubby, and then there were four or five boarders living in the garage. Um, and the mother of the family of seven, who was basically my landlady, she would, so the kids, right, the workers all have soda, right? Because soda, I mean, fast energy, like a lot of sugar. I mean, you kind, it makes a little more sense when you're working in the fields to be drinking that stuff because you're working so hard. Um, but the kids would start drinking soda and she would sort of use me as like influence. She'd be like, Tere, like soda's bad, right? Like in Spanish, right? I'm not going to put you all through my Spanish. Um, like, Tere, isn't soda bad? And she'd like look at the, you know, Israel who's like drinking. I'd be like, oh, it's terrible. I never drink it, Isra. He's like, hmm, puts it down. Um, but interestingly, right, um, I would get food from a sort of food bank food drop thing with them. And I, I went a couple times to go to the food bank with them. Um, and I got my own and they got their own. Um, and when you bring the food back, so this is the day old stuff from Albertsons and Trader Joe's. Um, and some of it, little, it would be like the meat that was expiring that day. Sometimes it was brought down in like a styrofoam cooler where I'm sort of like, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this. But um, there were always like some sweets, right? There'd be something from the bakery. And interestingly, you know, we would bring all this stuff home and the kids would ignore the cookies and go for the fruit. Like there wouldn't be, and produce was something that was really prized at that drop. And there was this one day, so... Um, it's a bunch of volunteers helping to distribute it, right? So this woman shows up with a pickup truck loaded down with all this day-old stuff. And then there's a group of volunteers who help to distribute it. So it's this thing where they, they were setting up the Rubbermaid bins and everything. And then all the rest of us show up with, like, plastic bags. And we stand there like we're trick-or-treating. And, like, these women will just distribute food to you. So there's this dynamic of, like, trying to make eye contact and making sure that they're going to give you stuff. And fruit was very precious in this sort of like little mini economy. And this one day at one, because there were a couple of distribution sites, the workers were like taking the best fruit for themselves. So you'd see them like assess it and then like squirrel it away. And then when it was like, you know, a styrofoam trade where half of it was, you know, rotting, then they would give it to us. And I just, I was so mad. Everyone's just like, oh, whatever, it's fine, it's free food. And I was... I mean, it's kind of hilarious, right? I'm standing there, I'm like this very uppity, like, I'm like, no, I am entitled to better free produce. <laughs> and like, that isn't fair. Like, you are supposed to be sharing. And, I, and I, in my head, I'm like, this is what happens when you just have a good Samaritan and no accountability. I, somebody needs to organize a nonprofit. But, I mean, right, I get all upset about this. I'm like, no, there's got to be a way to fix this so it's more fair. Um, so people, I think, grasp, they grasp the basic nutrition information that I grew up with, right, which is, eat your fruits and vegetables, avoid fried food, too much sugar, too much salt, bad. Figuring out ways for that to operationalize that in their daily life is really tricky. And certainly when I was working at Walmart and at Applebee's, you know, people are eating more convenience foods and stuff. But it's not, you know, I write about this in the book. So the night shift at Walmart is pretty much like the worst eating habits I've ever watched um, unfold. So, I mean, one of my coworkers, most nights, bigger guy, I would look up in the break room and he would be ha during our lunch break, which came at two o'clock in the morning, he would have like a bag of chips and a two liter of Mountain Dew and just be drinking from the two liter, yeah. right? Where I'm like, that is some intensely 
bad food. I mean, like, oh. And I was like, so, Aaron, I'm like, why are you eating that? And he's like, because it's cheap and it's easy, and it's right here, right? So I think the important thing for me there is, like, he didn't say, because this is better than anything else, or this makes me feel good, or I like this better. He's like, it's cheap and it's easy. And I think a lot of people... Because especially if you're working like a crummy job or you're stressed out, right? Cheap and easy is as important as what tastes good or what they, people know they should eat, right? And for me, that really shifted how I was thinking about, you know, how, how do we fix the American way of eating the American diet? I'm like, it's not necessarily about telling people to eat their vegetables, right? It's like, how do we make it easy for folks to eat well? Like, it's hard. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it is, really. It, it, it's it's hard when you're working to... Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, yesterday, I think it was in the New York Times mm-hmm. that the story broke. A uh, story broke um, that discussed two new studies that came out refuting the idea of a food desert in urban areas. And I was really curious to hear what um, Tracy's take was on this, because I just found, even just walking through the halls of KCRW, (laughs) oh yeah, I just knew that was baloney, and you know, there's definitely grocery stores, and I'm just like taking it all in, Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about how we think those studies are flawed. Right, well, I mean, I think it's important and we were talking about this earlier, it's really important to remember that the idea of a food desert is a really crude measure, particularly when it's measured in terms of supermarkets, which is how it's always been measured, because that's been the shorthand that we have for is there fresh produce and healthy food in a neighborhood, right? Because most people do their get their food through supermarkets. So is there a supermarket in a neighborhood? Supermarkets are full of a lot of crappy food too, right? So they're not necessarily the best metric um, for making sure people have a lot of access to good quality healthy food. Like I would argue that the Walmart I was working at, it would it's not an unreasonable thing to avoid the produce section there. I mean, I would I threw out 200 pounds of asparagus in one day because it had been like it hadn't been rotated out of the cooler. The kid running the section didn't know anything about produce. I mean, it all was pretty crappy quality and wasn't taken care of, right? So you know, the idea of, like, supermarkets fix everything, right, it has always been crude and flawed. Um, I find it really interesting just because I have been in enough low-income neighborhoods where I'm like, it tends to be kind of hard to find stuff that's convenient and easy, and particularly when there's so much other food access. So, I mean, there's um, a phrase called food swamp that some people have been trying to popularize as being, like, a more accurate way, right, when you're talking about a community that has a preponderance of corner stores and bodegas and things like that and, and less healthy food choices. There's that. Um, but don't you think that at the point where we are now, where we have been operating, we've been operating, that generations have grown up w- within this food system, it's a huge cultural shift. It's not just food access. Right. It's really not, it's not just food access. I don't think anybody has ever been saying it's just access. And I think that the food desert idea, right, is a bit of a response to the fact that most of our discussion around nutrition has been about telling people what they should eat, right? And that's great 
but that's not the only problem that people are facing, right? And the cultural shift, right, that has to do with changing how people think about food also has to do with like wages and work life, right? Like it's got a lot to do with what's actually reasonable to expect people to do in their daily life. Because I mean, one thing that I, I found really striking in this Times piece is they quote, um, I think his name is Roland Sturm, um, who did one of the two studies, and he said, you know, look, there are supermarkets within a couple miles of most urban areas. And I'm like, are you walking two miles, Roland? <laughs> with 40 with pounds all of, of groceries? your groceries? Because like a couple miles is really far for a city dweller, right? And I mean, like I've spent a lot of time in Detroit. A fifth of the city doesn't have a car and their public transit is awful, you know? So, okay, there's a supermarket within two miles if you want to walk through two miles of like fairly ghetto street to like go get it. Or maybe you would just get what's in your neighborhood, right? Which is generally speaking, like a crummy liquor store that is certified to take EBT and SNAP and like has, you know, a very basic amount of vegetables and some government cheese. Like, that's not as healthy. We were talking earlier um, before we started about the census talking about use of time. Mm. Yep. Um, I, I thought this was really, really interesting because it's something that usually, usually when people talk about lack of food access and the problems we have with type 2 diabetes and obesity, food gets this hyper-focus to the exclusion of everything else as if it exists in a vacuum, right. that all you need to do is parachute in food and miraculously mm -hmm. all the problems will be solved. <laughs> right. Well, this, um, so there's this thing called the American Time Use Survey. And a few years ago, um, the government started measuring how much time people are spending on food prep. Um, and so USDA did an analysis of this data. And what was really striking to me is that the single greatest, this is particularly striking to me as a single overeducated woman, um, the single greatest predictor of uh, how much time a woman spends cooking is not whether or not she is low income or normal income, it's not if she works part-time or full-time, it's whether or not she's married, like if she has a partner. Um, and so women spend, I think it's around an hour a day, married women spend about an hour a day doing food prep. Men, I mean, I think the lowest amount of time a man spends cooking, this would be like a single full-time working man, was like seven minutes. <laughs> on food preparation every day. That's not, and so that's, that's nuking something. That's nuking something. That's nuking something. So, or a lot of cereal. I think of cereal. Yeah, a lot of cereal. So, so what intrigues me is this idea that it's easy to cook, you know, and, and I think, um, I mean, I think it's easy to cook when you've been given the skills and, and they're so natural to you, it's like breathing. But I think for most people now, there no longer is that connection. Yeah. So then you're talking about having to not only impart a, a whole new culture about valuing a certain type of eating, but also spending a, the precious amount of time you have when you're not at work, right. not in transportation to or from work, taking children to the doctor, or any of the other things, um, Talk a little bit about just the, the pressures, the time pressure on people in low-income communities. Yeah, so I found it um, 
for me, right, I've been cooking since I was seven. It's something that in the course of doing this book, I was like, I am so lucky. Like I screwed up all the stuff really bad when I was like 10, right? So by the time I had to actually feed myself, right, I kind of know what I'm doing. And, you know, when I was working on, I think for me, when I was working on the night shift at Walmart is when I really sort of shifted how I was thinking about cooking because, so night shift at Walmart means you start work at 10 o'clock at night, you work through the night, you get uh, out of work around 6.30. I was working about a half an hour from home. So I get home by like 7, 7.15, crawl into bed, try to sleep for as long as possible, um, which would usually mean until about 2 o'clock. And like that's when I would be like, okay, I've got to like do my stuff for the day. I had to take notes on my reporting. So that's slightly different from most people working at Walmart. And then you got to cook. And you're not, you're right, I'm like, I'm not seeing any of my friends because everybody is working normal hours. I'm exhausted all the time. And, and I got really poor because I did this really smart middle class thing of buying a lot of um, bulk items up front, which seemed brilliant. And then I didn't have money for rent because I had slightly misbudgeted, right? And I was like, I have invested all, my money's all tied up in grains, <laughs> right? And when it got down to being like, okay, either I'm going to eat by making bread or I'm going to eat by eating raw flour, I didn't like cooking anymore. I really resented it. I was like, this sucks, right? And I was sort of stuck with eating like rice and beans, which is a great wholesome meal five times in a row and not so much fun after, right? And I really came to be like, God, like this, like I really dislike cooking. I don't enjoy this, right? Because I didn't realize that for me it had been fun before in part because it was a choice, right? So I think that's something we have to keep in mind. And then also, right, if you don't know what you're doing in the, in the kitchen, like if you haven't really learned how to cook well, and I think this is important, if you don't know how to fix it when you screw it up, like if you don't know, say, that you can balance salt with acid, right, or something like that, then you just end up with really crappy food and you're like, why bother? Because it sucks, right? You oversalt the beans, you've just wasted all this time and money and food and you should have just gotten Hamburger Helper, right? <laughs> and that's the other thing, because when we talk about supermarkets, we tend to imagine that supermarket equals great food, whereas the supermarket is primarily a, deliver primarily a delivery system for something very close to fast food. Yeah, well, I found that really interesting, right? When I looked at the history of the supermarket, that like supermarkets' business model relies on industrial and processed food. They were founded as a business in the 1930s, right after industrial food processing and industrial agriculture came into their own. They don't really work at delivering any, like, unless they're delivering lots of processed food that they can buy on sort of big scale and sell off, you know, as it, sort of as they feel like it, not because it's going to rot or anything. So interestingly. Um, when I did a sort of spot comparison between a basket of goods between the local grocery I went to in Detroit and the Walmart I worked at, so Walmart for the overall basket was cheaper than the local grocery, but for fruits and for meat, the local grocery was cheaper because small grocers can be fairly competitive on fruits and meat because they rot, and so Walmart and big chain grocers can't do the same industrial economies of scale. Like, Walmart can kill everybody when it comes to, you know, like, their box mac and cheese or whatever because they just, you know, can do the supplier pressure thing and just contract, you know, they give some food manufacturer a huge, you know, contract to make all this stuff, and it's really cheap individually. Um, but then, you know, fruits and vegetables... Walmart can't compete at the same way. Gosh, we only have five more minutes before <laughs> questions. I mean, this is like wow. such a... Okay, so 
<laughs> to the end. Um, the end. So, you know, it's so interesting to me when, when we talk about is food, um, is eating well for the rich, I, I mean, you could just flip that sentence and say, is good health only for the rich? And then it makes it really easy to answer that question. Um, <laughs> and, but th there tends to be a very emotional response around it. And um, when I start to talk about food and I talk about politics, people tend to get sort of their back up that I immediately go from talking about the emotionality about food to politics mm -hmm. um, and to sort of larger issues. What, what is your last page of the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just really was interested, like the longer that I spent doing you know, this work, the more that I just felt, I was like, food isn't really the problem here, right? Like, people actually like and enjoy good food when they have access to it. It's not, right, like my coworker at Walmart was eating crappy food because it was cheap and it was easy, not because he was like, oh, a really healthy casserole, I would never eat that because it's disgusting, right? It's not easy to get, and, it's, and if people aren't familiar with that kind of food, you know, they won't eat it, but, you know, something that I find over and over again, right, you can get anyone to talk to you about, like, food, right? I mean, you know this. And right, and they like to, people will eat good, fresh, healthy food if it's given to them, and it's easy, and it's something that feels accessible to them. And that's something that doesn't just happen because we we say, oh, we should really respect the farmer and the land and the environment, which we should, right? But it's because they can afford it and they have a, a life that gives them time and space to do that. You know, I mean, people work so like people at the high income level like work so much. People in low income parts of the economy work a lot, like welfare reform really pushed a lot of people into working very hard at the low end of the economic spectrum. And that makes it really hard, right, to do cooking. And so we've got to have a conversation about food that isn't just about what's in the shopping cart or on our plate, but about the shape of the life that we're building for Americans, right? Because if wages are stagnating and people have less and less time at home and everyone's stressing the heck out because they have insurance premiums that are insane, all of that makes it really hard for people to take care of their diet in a really good way. And we really pay a big public price, right, for having an unhealthy population. So there, you know, there's a fiscal and sort of like economic competition argument to be made as well as something that just like good food is like water, right? Like we don't sit, around, we don't sit here and say, oh, well, poor people just want dirty water, so we'll just let them have dirty water. And if they want to get good, if they want clean water, they can walk two miles for it, right? I mean, that we treat healthy food in that way, to me, is increasingly just seems really ridiculous. I mean, almost satirical, right? And my pitch here. <laughs> um, and I, I just really believe what all of us are interested in is a society full of productive, engaged citizens. And health is a really big part of it. And I just don't see anything happening political to move real change until the very large corporate health providers and insurance companies decide that they're going to lean on the government because it's just going to be too costly. When you talk about unsustainability, our e economy is not going to be able to be sustained by the kind of health costs. Yeah, I mean, we spend... I can't even remember what the, the billions of dollars you spend on completely preventable diseases and the lost work hours, all of that. I mean, not just quality of life, but if you're doing economic competition analysis, it's pretty stark. So now we are open to questions. 
So you're advocating that Kaiser kill me, one of our local health care providers, mandate that everybody actually get out their crock pots, throw chicken in, and four different kinds of vegetables no. and have somebody whatever? I've been with Kaiser since I was a child. <laughs> um, no, I don't think that... I think the, the structural problems in the food system are so huge that the only way to address them is by changing the way the USDA operates. And the only way that will happen is if political pressure is brought to bear on congressmen and committees that sit dealing with agriculture. It's very interesting that no California representatives sit in any agricultural committees. So I, I just think that no real change will happen until the stakeholders that really feel economic pain force the government to start to talk about real change. You're still dealing with individual choice. You can't force somebody to eat healthy. No, you, you can't force somebody to eat healthy, but you can't bifurcate, you can't say to people, this is how we would like you to eat so you're healthier, but we are going to subsidize the calories that pretty much guarantee an extremely poor and inexpensive diet, and we will give no support to the calories that we would really like you to consume. No, it's, it's all down to free choice, but so much of what we, appears to be free choice to us when we walk into a store has already been chosen by someone else. And if I can just interject, you know, it's not like Americans organized in the 1930s and said, you know what, we want a lot of processed food right? Like, this is something that sort of evolved, and I'm sure at the time it seemed reasonable, right? Because food couldn't make you sick. When did food make you sick? Like, this is something talking with, like, WIC advocates in low-income neighborhoods with big immigrant populations. You know, I've talked to folks, and they say, well, it's just really hard because we have to explain to people that the food in the supermarket could make them sick, right, if they eat a lot of it. Um, you know, and I think, you know, and I think we all sort of, right, it's food, and you can eat it, but if you follow these diets, like, you're most people are going to get sick, and people are not running, I have not met anyone, maybe folks here have, running around saying, you know what would be awesome? Diabetes, right? <laughs> people eat crappy diets because we've made it really, really, really easy and tasty to do that. I do think that if it was easy to eat well, a lot of people would. So not everybody. There were, we all know people who are idiots and jerks. I'm, we know them in our professional lives. We know them in our families. They exist. I don't think that that means we therefore shouldn't be trying to build a food system that is, at least makes it as easy to eat a healthy diet as it does to eat crap. What is the status now of the United Farm Workers? They uh, represent about 5% of farms in California. Um, and they're very active in terms of media and legislative advocacy. Um, I don't believe that they're doing very much new organizing, although they continue to represent the workers that they have. So um, I've done a lot of work more with California Rural Legal Assistants, um, who have a stronger presence on the ground um, and have um, more cultural capacity with dealing um, with the indigenous community, um, which now makes up about a third of farm workers in California. Nobody's mentioned uh, farmers' markets. I mean, if you live in California, there's a tremendous amount of fresh food available. And if you actually look at the cost of processed food to real food, processed food actually costs more. This gentleman who's eating potato chips and Mountain Dew, if you work out what a, a pound of potato chips costs, it's 4 to $8 a pound. Real food actually costs less than processed food. 
the reason we have all this processed food is these companies can make a lot more money. The profit margin is greater. But it really does come down to an individual choice, isn't it? Life is as easy as it's ever been today. People are working much less today than they were 40, 50 years ago. It's just, it's just easy to get this food. They could make the choice to eat healthy food at a cheaper cost. Tell us how we are working less. Well, I think that in looking at um, the cost of food, like by pound, like maybe I haven't done the analysis, like maybe, sure, potato chips are cheaper per pound. People don't think like that, right? People talk about like, oh, fast food calories are cheaper per pound. That's not how people think. They're like, I can get a liter, two liters of Mountain Dew for 99 cents. I can get a bag of chips for a dollar. And eat it now. And eat it now. That's two bucks. That will make you feel fuller than an apple that it's going to cost maybe 95 cents or whatever that is not going to taste as good because they're crummy apples out of season, whatever. I mean, I think that that's really important to sort of engage with, right? Like people are thinking not just in terms of price, right? But like everybody else, right? Low-income people gauge time and convenience and flavor along with cost. And that's something that we have to sort of engage with and think about when we're talking about how people And the idea diet. that we're working less than we've ever worked before, that may be true right. for a very, very, very small percentage of the population. It's very small. But very small. But overall, for most workers in the United States of America are working more, have less free time, including free time to cook, than they have ever had. And their wages have been stagnating since the 70s. Yes, but, but your life is not the same as most people's right. lives. Well, I get asked a lot, like, oh. We're so lucky. I would, I would probably say everyone in this room goes to a farmer. How many people in this room go to farmer's markets? We are so lucky. Right. Um, that's why we're not talking about well, us. And it's important to remember, right, farmer's markets are big on the coasts. They still represent less than 2% of the food retail in the country. They're, I mean, they've grown hugely there's still a teeny, 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 tiny portion of the food system at this point. And for people working the kinds of jobs I was working, they're not practical. You know, I've had people say, like, oh, did you go to the farmer's market in New York? I was like, and I felt for a minute, I was like, kind of guilty. It's like, oh, did I go? I'm like, wait a minute. I was working until midnight on Friday night and then back in the kitchen at 10 o'clock on Saturday. Like, you could, so maybe I don't care enough, right? Because I got a full night's sleep and went to work and I could have deprived myself of sleep and gone to the farmer's market at eight if I really cared. Where was I going to put, I mean, I, mean, I don't think it's my job to make that judgment for other people. Yeah. And I certainly don't think they're going to listen to me if I do. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's really interesting to, um, just Southern California, California, we're, we're just, we're in a bubble even on our own. If you just even compare the people that Tracy met in the valley where all this food is grown and how they have to live even in terms of access to clean water, the very people that make mm. all that produce possible compared to how we live, it's, 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 they're living in a third world country just 250 miles okay. up the road. Um, so there were, it's so, what's the solution? I mean, I think part of it, right, is having a discussion about food distribution as part of infrastructure, as part of something that we need to have a public-private partnership around, as opposed to strictly leaving it to the private market. Because right now, we have, like, all of our food is basically distributed privately through supermarket chains. 
they don't have to report to anything. There's no accountability. It doesn't matter, right? So there's communities where you can't really easily get fresh food and sort of like, okay, whatever. I think that's a problem. I think that that's bad for health. I think that that's bad for economics. I think that that, and I do think that like healthy food is just as much a right to people as fresh and clean water, right? And until we have a conversation about that to make it, so I'm totally down. You get farmer's markets into every community, awesome. Until we have that though, I don't think it's right for us to say like people could just go to the farmer's market because most people can't. It's yeah, I mean, if I could make one huge decision, a blanket decision, I would bring back home ec and shop class. Okay. <laughs> uh, a question about health. And I, I, I really was touched that you sort of risked your life going to work in the Central Valley, being there with purpose. those harsh chemicals and fertilizer runoff. But I wondered what the people experience that you were living with? Did they have any recognition of the toxicity of their lifestyles and what they had to endure to pick the food that comes to our plate and the risks that they had to take? I mean, people generally know, right, that they're not being paid well and that they're, you know, people are worried about pesticides. Um, they're not necessarily super educated about it, right? So, um, you know, we would be working in a field and you would hear, you know, the buzzing of a plane. You couldn't necessarily see it, but then you might smell some, like, something that was sort of like raid. Everyone's like, ah, well, that's too bad, right? And that's pretty much where it stops and it ends because your life is you go and you do this work. And there's no immediate, I mean, California, to be fair, right, has the most regulations uh, around agricultural labor of any state. So my experience is sort of a best-case scenario. I think there's much more egregious pesticide violations in, um, like, North Carolina and Florida. That's much more difficult there. So and folks of, understand it. And outside of the United States. Oh, definitely. A lot of pesticide companies that can no longer sell their pesticides here dump their pesticides into other agricultural markets. I agree with you about home economics. Uh, it's not as bleak as it is out there. We have uh, the California Restaurant Association sponsors... Um, actually, a couple of high schools uh, in the culinary arts, arts field. But my question is, have you looked into the um, issues of the costs for food stores, for grocery stores, to be in those neighborhoods? But why does it have to be a grocery... Why does it have to be a grocery store with the footprint of Avon's pavilions? No, that, that, that wasn't... It, it doesn't have to be... Um, what I'm saying is I, I, because I was working with the councilwoman for East L.A., South mm -hmm. Central, um, and she wanted me to open a restaurant there. And the demographics just wouldn't work for me to make it profitable. But one of the things is, is did you, did, in, in your discussions, did you look at that, even if it's a small footprint of what, the de if, if there was any city, if the city was going to sponsor a grocery store to be in those neighborhoods? I mean, that's where the local government has to come right. in to help. Right. I do look at supermarket development and efforts to sort of bring stores in. And so there's a couple things to respond there. Like one, um, there's traditionally been a real resistance from the supermarket industry to go into neighborhoods um, in urban areas saying like, these aren't our customers. We can't make money here. All the metrics for how to gauge supermarkets have been things that were developed with the suburbs in mind. So, that's so there was this big boom in supermarkets in the 50s, and the way they gauge can we put a store there is based on the metrics that make sense in the suburbs. So they would say, oh, there's not enough median income. 
right? Much, much higher population density with a lower income means you can make money in those neighborhoods. It just took rejiggering the, the metrics, right? So I talked with you know folks, um, this woman, Fran Spencer in Chicago, who helped bring supermarkets into that city, and you know she talked about having to put you know supermarket executives on vans and take them around neighborhoods, and they would sort of be like, oh, this isn't really our kind of. These aren't our customers, which is an interesting argument because when a supermarket executive says that, that actually would mean that there's nobody that buys food. food. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, well, there's a lot of people. What do you think? Like, they won't buy food, right? So there's this weird idea that, like, people in the suburbs like to eat a rich and varied diet, and people in the hood, they like cuchifritos, right? Like, it's kind of messed up. So there, you know, there's a little bit of rejiggering that and, and making those arguments to executives that might not be predisposed to it and also pointing out stores that do succeed. So, for example, um, I talk about the Pathmark in Harlem um, in New York, which was like a redevelopment-type project in the 90s. It's now one of the highest-grossing stores uh, for the chain. And, and here in Los Angeles, just to talk for a minute, there's now been for almost a year um, a policy council, the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, which... Disclosure, I am on. And we serve as an advisory council to the mayor. We have 10 or so work groups, and some of them deal with um, corner market conversions mm -hmm. and um, working on alternative distribution systems like right. a food hub. Um, actually, California now, we're working on the first statewide food, um, oh, Food Policy Council. So I, you know, a lot of these ideas that are being floated in the nonprofit community are probably going to come to pass here in California first, um, or in cities like Philadelphia, and actually, strangely enough, Detroit. Right. And in this farm-to-table movement, we have a lot of organic farms and local grocery stores. Um, or some stores with a better reputation, such as Trader Joe's. Who are working on their farms? Are they treated better than those industrialized farms? And also, in the long run, um, if we just say in an ideal world is all organic or farm to table, is it sustainable? Can we all afford to do that? Can we feed the population? If you shop at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Farmer's Market, labor rights have nothing to do with organic certification. That's been a long-standing fight within the organic movement. So, you know, the garlic I was picking was going to Christopher Ranch and to Walmart. Christopher Ranch is sold at Whole Foods. Um, garlic company goes to Walmart. Like, just because something's organic means nothing about the labor condition. And the only way you'll find out, really, is asking a farmer. And some small farmers do really great, and they take that really seriously, and some people don't. And there's pressures on them. I'm not necessarily faulting them entirely, but you know that's got nothing to do um, with and where you're And Trader buying. Joe's and tr is not the kinder, gentler market that... Um, <laughs> I mean, I love Trader Joe's. I love shopping there. It's very convenient. It's very easy, but it's a very big part of the industrial food chain, and they were sort of famously one of the last chains to sign on to the mm -hmm. Immokalee Coalition um, plea for one cent extra a pound on for tomatoes. So um, you, you can't be fooled by marketing. Um, and then the second part of the question. Right, the second part of the question, right, I don't, I don't think I can give like a yes, no answer to that. Like, I think that we're a fairly ingenious species 
and we can generally figure out how to do agriculture. And there's a lot about um, organic agriculture, more sustainable agriculture, that makes me think we probably can feed people. We probably have to eat less meat, right? We, we probably have to plant less fuel. And plant less fuel. We like need we to have plant to use less fuel. Our, we have to use our soil, which is a natural resource, um, to grow things that we will eat. Not and not and, not and that includes not grow things to feed to, to things, feed to things that, we that we eat. We have to grow the stuff that we will actually eat. Like oh. that, we probably could do. Only about almost ninety percent of the food that's grown in the United States is not for humans to consume. It's either for animals mm -hmm. or it's for biofuel. Right. And we eat a very very small percentage of the agriculture. In, um, in the United States. Right. And right now we only grow about half the amount of fruits and vegetables we would need for everyone to meet the recommended daily allowance. So our food supply in the U.S. just is, I mean, and, right, and we subsidize something like 42% of the farm bill spending goes to corn and Goes soy, to fuel goes and, to and, and cows. Fuel and cows. Fuel and meat. And yeah. then 5% goes to fruits and vegetables. Um, so we haven't really explored, right, what it would really take for us to grow a reasonably healthy diet and feed ourselves from that. I think we could probably do that. I, I actually worked with the uh, redevelopment agency for the city that was very involved in the corner market conversions. I mean, they've got four of them in a pilot program, which is great. Um, unfortunately, the redevelopment agency got blown out in the, the court decision at the end of the year. So they were funding with the California Endowment um, some of the work you're talking about, and the county health department, which is also facing a lot of funding challenges. So w where does the opportunity come from, A, for that, uh, to, to continue those kinds of programs? Because that does seem to put um, refrigeration into local little stores where people go all the time. Where's the money come from? How could you imagine an opportunity to make that happen? And I did want to mention also the downtown grocery store, they happen to get in, the Rouse down there, is I think now the highest grossing um, grocery store in the entire uh, Ralph's chain. And how long did it take them to put one Decades. there? Decades. <laughs> it's Decades. amazing. Um, I just want to mention the, the market conversion. Um, I actually, I was talking to a couple of the people, and I mean, I just said Kickstarter. I, th I think an incredible opportunity to do market conversion in a really direct way is to involve people in communities, business people in communities, to support the market conversions in their community and reach out on a very personal, individual market-by-market -market basis through something like Kickstarter, where you can create sort of a, a neighborhood-based and outside support. I mean, you know, get involved with the Food Policy Council. We need people with ideas and people who have time and... Well, I mean, you probably know about this, but um, right under, I think it's under Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, they have the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, so they're setting aside some funding to support projects like that. It's based on the food trust work in Philadelphia, which has done grocery stores, corner store conversions. I'll say, like, I'm most excited about things like corner store conversions because I think that something that's utilizing the food sort of infrastructure in a neighborhood and it's convenient for people can be really powerful. I mean, because I get excited about like Radical Home Ec or like a totally healthy, awesome corner store where you get really good food really cheap and easy. Like, Or a food truck that just great. sells 
fruits and vegetables. Right. I mean, making food trucks and green carts, all those things profitable and sustainable for the long term, like that's another set of problems, right? Because tiny entrepreneurial businesses, making them something people can do for the long haul is difficult. And to be fair, right, like neighborhoods mostly want grocery stores. Like people in neighborhoods need a store that's open with the set hours, long time, like easy to get to, has everything in one stop. Like, that's helpful for folks. And most of the money that we got for the corner stores came through the stimulus program. Right? Californians, especially Southern Californians, where we have the, tra the farmer markets, where we have the Trader Joe's, how different is our nutritional no notion different from fellow Americans, like when you work in Detroit or in the borough surrounding Detroit? There's not the same sort of fresh quality food um, in places like Detroit as there are here. Um, like, I'm always sort of shocked when I'm like, I can just go to the supermarket and it'll be totally good produce a lot of the time. And that there's, you know, farmer's markets all year round with fresh stuff, right? Detroit has a big farmer's market downtown that's like a wholesale retail market. It's great. But in wintertime, it's like potatoes, some kale, onions, and then, you know, citrus. I mean, people do reselling there and stuff like that. But I would say that California is just, it's a very different agricultural place than, you know, the heartland in winter. So that definitely changes how much you eat in terms of fresh food. Even now, when I go to New York and it's winter and I go to a restaurant and I order a salad, I'm always shocked when it comes. It doesn't matter what, rest, what level of restaurant it is. It just, it's, it's a part of our culture here. And, and I don't think we appreciate it enough. Thank <laughs> you.